Welcome to the Face Plays podcast. My name is Mel. I'm an oral health therapist and orofacial myofunctional therapist at my practice, The Face Place. Each week, I'll be interviewing a different professional to learn all about their area of expertise and how it relates to oral and facial function, dental health, and the whole body. Let's get to our guest. Brenda Munns is a registered nurse, registered midwife, and IBCLC with 16 years experience in private and public hospital settings. She has worked as a private IBCLC in her business, The Gentle Village, for over two years, providing care for families in Perth and online. Brenda is trained in orofacial myology, and she has a holistic root cause approach to the world of breastfeeding. Hi, Brenda. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. It's great. Uh, so our intro for the episode explains that you're an IBCLC, but I'd love you to talk a little bit more about your individual approach to your work because I guess not all IBCLCs are created equal right? No not at all so my background obviously before being an IBCLC was that I was a registered nurse and then I went back and did my midwifery and then you know my master's and then um, my IBCLC so there is a bit of quite an extensive sort of health knowledge behind all of that but my approach is because I guess all with all the training and the experience it's more a holistic approach how you know getting to the root cause is so important and you know I guess our culture where mums are very quickly blamed when feeding doesn't go very well you know whether it's oh, you've got low milk supply or, you know, you're just stressed or anxious or it'll take some time. Um, and a lot of the time the issues actually come from the baby. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> most of the time it's for the baby. want to blame someone, um, blame the baby. <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> or babies also get labelled, you know, um, they're lazy yeah. or they get blamed or they're just sleepy. And, again, babies don't come into this world to be that that kind of personality (laughs) they come out with these primitive reflexes that they should have developed or are developing with the right support and I think in you know these days where a lot you know we're having to introduce a lot more interventions and a lot of things like that so I think getting back to the root cause of okay well why isn't it going well let's just knuckle it all down was what happened in pregnancy what happened during birth all of that can actually really impact how a mum feeds in their postpartum journey, whether it's breastfed or bottle fed. So, yeah. So yeah. My, our approach is getting to the root cause of, okay, let's start from the scratch and let's work our way and see if we can find any sort of situations that may have caused you know some issues with little one learning to feed, whether it's, you know, functional or body wise. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I like that expression. The cause informs the cure. I think that's, yeah, yeah absolutely. Root cause definitely <laughs> matters. As you said, you've done your midwifery and you mentioned a little bit there about reflexes and pregnancy and birth. So yes. does birth impact the oral function of baby in terms oh, of their breastfeeding? A hundred percent. And I think going back to, you know, having that midwifery background as well and seeing, you know, the, the birth process itself, whether it's assisted birth or just the normal you know, spontaneous vaginal births that can occur. There's so many situations that it can impact oral function, but it all starts even before birth. It starts with pregnancy. Mm. And with pregnancy, you know, there's, you know, the position that the baby's in, for example, whether they're breech or they're, they're transverse or posterior, anything like that towards the third trimester where there's so much growing that actually occurs towards, you know, in the third trimester that, you know, for example, a breech baby, most of them will, have a high palate and when you think about 
the you know the situation how they're sort of you know their head is up in the rib cage and I guess depending on how you know squished they are behind the rib cages will depend on you know okay is that tongue sort of hanging low is it not sort of set, sitting nicely on the palate all of that can actually impact already what mm. feeding is going to be like and then they go through the birth process itself and you know 100% birth can actually impact you know oral function feeding whether it's breast or bottle and it's you know, when we look back at, okay, their skull bones, very normal process, but needs to mould over in order to enter the birth canal and pass through the birth canal. But once those bones start to, you know, shape out and form nicely, which takes a few days, you can imagine the cranial nerves, how they're all going to be aggravated and heightened. And all of this can impact, again, those reflexes, like whether it's the rooting reflex, the sucking reflex, it can impact all of that in itself. And then, that's just the normal process, let alone adding yeah. you know, a vacuum or a forceps delivery or cesareans. Yeah. All of this really can impact how a little one sort of enters this world, whether, you know, their fight or flight response is really through the roof because all of a sudden, you know, they've just had more pressure added onto their little skull bones. And a lot of the time, yeah, we, we do see, you know, or <laughs> one thing that I do remember is, you know, working in the hospital is, you know, the babies that had really powerful lungs, a set of lungs on them and they're like, oh, you know, you, you've got your work cut out for you kind of thing. But, you know, looking back at it, I'm like, these babies had a vacuum birth or had cesareans and you'd think, were they in pain? Were they in discomfort? Yeah. So, of course, they're going to want to either cluster feed because they need that comfort from mum or they're struggling to feed and are hungry. So looking back at, you know, even how I practiced in hospital is completely different to how I practice now. Yeah, it's amazing. you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And just a, a note there for our listeners who might not be aware, um, talking about cranial nerves, there's 12 cranial nerves yes. there, the, the nerves that originate in our head. And yeah. yeah, so if you're talking about a birth, whether intervention or spontaneous and um, I'm going to say inverted commas natural here, <laughs> yeah, 12 yeah. nerves that have to to kind of go through that traumatic event and, and learn their Absolutely. role, I guess. Yeah. 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 So the birth has the ability to impact the baby's oral function. So then what does that mean for breastfeeding yeah. if they're not coordinating these reflexes and nerves and perhaps have a high palate and, and some limited tongue movement? What, what can that result in for their breastfeeding ability? So, so these are the, you know, again, every baby is quite different. So it is very hard to sort of put all of them in one sort of little category or in a little box. But, you know, we, we do get babies who will fall asleep straight at the breast. You know, they're just, it's really hard work for them. So, you know, there is some level of normalcy of babies falling asleep at the breast after they've had a good feed, <laughs> not sort of within those first few minutes because they're either fatiguing out having to work differently, you know, whether they're using a lot more of their lips or their their gums and, and jaw to actually try and suck because that tongue or the, you know, tongue's not doing the work for it. That's where we notice, okay, are babies falling asleep on the breast really quickly or are they finishing feeding in five minutes and then, you know, half an hour later they're hungry again because they only managed to get or consume just enough to keep them satisfied, but not sort of, you know, give them a little full belly that they can sort of last, you know, two hours or more. Yeah. So, you know, when we look at cluster feeding and, you know, or even just the way that they can actually latch onto the breast, 
that's when, you know, mums may, you know, not to mention be exhausted, but, you know, have that's where nipple damage can occur. We've got mastitis and, and it's this, you know, we need to remember that a baby and a mum, they're a diet, they're together. And if a baby's going to be impacted, you know, in some way or another, the mother will be impacted and vice versa. Yeah, sure. And I guess what comes from that, the question is, why does it matter? Why is it, why is it important for a baby to breastfeed and to breastfeed in like sort of the correct mechanical process? What does that do for them? Well, it, you know, um, the tongue, again, it, it all starts with the tongue and it is quite important for development later on in life. What we, what we want to achieve is good oral motor function, really starting, starting early. You know, we've got, you know, breastfeeding can actually help you know, it's a natural palate expander. It will help, you know, with the jaw structure, optimal nasal breathing if that palate is nice and wide and that tongue sitting up on the roof of the mouth. But it also helps prepare the muscles for chewing, swallowing, which, you know, with every event in our life we're going to have to do, whether it's, you know, when they start solids at six months of age um, and so forth. But, you know, it's also important to remember it's not just about breastfeeding. It's also, you know, if a mum can't breastfeed or chooses not to breastfeed you know they they can give a bottle but again if the oral function isn't ideal or optimal for a little one they will also struggle on a bottle Mm -hmm. and so this is where you know sometimes the bottle is not the quick fix it may help mum if she's got you know sore nipples or damaged nipples or nipple trauma in that okay that pain from the mum's side of things sort of disappears but that issue sort of stays there. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, when we look at how it's going to impact a baby later on or how feeding is so important, if a baby's not feeding well, you know, this is where they can have, you know, reflux or colic symptoms or, you know, they you, you see these little ones really struggling to feed. The last thing we want is for them to associate feeding with a very unpleasant experience that can potentially yeah. lead to aversions. So it, it starts from infancy. It starts real young, the, yeah. the habits that we're actually setting for them. Yeah, for sure. I've actually, I've started to think of people's approach to body, bottle feeding in a very similar way that people have misconceptions about a C-section. In yeah. the, <laughs> as I say, misconception that a C-section could be, um, you know, the easy way out, or, yeah. which is obviously wrong <laughs> for a lot of different reasons and I, I've started to see that in a similar way with the bottle feeding that if breastfeeding doesn't work or if if you choose not to do it then uh, there's a misconception that bottle feeding will be easy or that it's Absolutely. like less technique sensitive or that it doesn't matter yeah <laughs> but yeah, yeah I think there's probably a lot more education that our our society needs about what those options mean yeah yeah, absolutely. And and I think what it comes down to at the moment is unfortunately the medical side of things. It's it's all about numbers, I guess, in a way that okay, baby's gaining weight, they don't really focus on what the mum chooses to do, whether they want to breastfeed and they get sent home with bottles because hey, gain, baby's gaining weight. The weight gain is not the only factor that we need to consider is how are they you know, how often is the mum having to feed in order for them to gain weight? How often, you know, are they having to, you know, the, the digestive system, how often are they, you know, passing urine? Like it's a, it's a whole 
body approach that we really need to take and not just look at the numbers and think, oh, yeah, I'm gaining weight, everything's fine, when in fact this mm-hmm. baby is struggling and mum's having to feed every hour. Like, you know, again, it's not sustainable for the diet to continue that way because then, you know, the mother gets burnt out and then once the mother's burnt out, what other option does the little one have, mm, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, too often they're, they're gaining weight, your latch looks fine, yeah. goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. <laughs> that's, that's what I hear. Like I don't, yeah, I don't do breastfeeding. If they get milk, then that's it. That that's all um, some sure. people are looking yeah. at, and it's and it shouldn't be that way. No. And on the flip side of that, is it possible for a baby who has like what we say a suboptimal feeding, like maybe they're not actually using their tongue the way that they should? Is it possible them for them to actually have a successful breastfeeding experience with between them and and mum? Like I know a lot of people that I see, I see older patients generally. And sometimes I, I see tongue ties or high palates or eating and feeding issues. And mum says we've, we breastfed for two years. Yeah. <laughs> like no worries. Is that, is that possible? It, it's definitely possible. And I think in my experience, what I seem to find is a lot of the time the mum is not a first time mum. So a lot of the time, the first, you know, when I take their histories, especially because they do say, oh, but I fed for, you know, this long. And I'm like, great, but what was it like? And then as we start to sort of get that history, they're like, okay, yeah, my baby did have reflux or my baby did have colic. And, you know, they, my nipples were ruined and, and trashed in those early few weeks or months, but then they got better. And it does, you know, the baby around the four or five months of age, the baby's whole body changes. They, they grow so much, you know, airway grows, the mouth grows, everything does grow that but latch can probably improve or the pain can also subside. But at the same time, the mother's sensitivity to it all, they, they do become quite used to it. So then if they experience so much trauma at the beginning of their first feeding journey, what we seem to notice is that the second, I don't know, brain has those that muscle memory or that kind of memory that perhaps they're just so used to it that, oh, but I didn't get pain this time. And I'm like, okay, well, what was it like the first time? And mm. that's what, oh, it was excruciating. Oh, it was toe curling. So whether that sort of plays a part in it, it, it is hard to say, but I do feel like if there is no, if there is suboptimal oral function at one point of their feeding journey, whether it's solids or whether it's, you know, milk or taking a bottle or anything like that, it will be affected. But I think, again, it comes down to, society sort of saying oh you know nipple pain is normal during feeding and mums just get brushed underneath like you know under so Mm -hmm. then when we ask them about their history they just assume that all of that is actually normal when in fact it isn't and this is where I think now we start to unravel it all It, it all makes sense to them once we actually sort of talk about their history and I guess they realize in a way, actually, it could have been better. It, it didn't have to be so painful or it, I didn't have to be feeding every hour, hour and a half. In those early days, you know, early couple of weeks, yes, that's great. But when a baby is still feeding like that and that, you know, they're five, six months old, what's actually going on? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it can't. Yeah. I, I don't know how some mums actually can continue <sighs> to do that. <laughs> Blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. I know um, from my own experience, my, my daughter had a tongue tie and high palate, which I was able to tell myself when I was in the hospital looking at her and I I was telling the staff that. And I was told I just have sensitive nipples. Oh, no. You know, I I was in a situation where I knew that that wasn't good information. No, not at all. Yeah, my heart goes out to people who 
you know, who don't, who don't know and are relying on the health professional there to help them and they don't always get absolutely what they need. So on that note, um, tethered oral tissues. So we're talking about lip tie, cheek tie, tongue tie. What role do they have to play in a baby's ability to breastfeed or bottle feed? So I think the, the way it works is obviously it, it impacts the oral reflexes. And, you know, if we find that, you know, a baby doesn't have, you know, something's holding that tongue down and they've learned to use different muscles, like, you know, compensate, they learn to use, okay, I'm going to use my lips rather than my tongue they can continue to do that. You know, the fact that a baby can compensate is great. It's healthy, but it shouldn't be long-term and it should just be sort of a temporary thing until we get to that root cause of what's, what are they doing? But the way it can sort of affect them is, you know, just like us, if we, what, what I, how I normally describe it to mums is that, you know, say we learn a new language and you know, from, little and then we just stop using it for a while it's always in the back of our mind but we really need to put some practice into it to to remember it to, to be quite refreshed in that second language and sort of you know be using it a lot more and if there is a tongue tie and it's been held down babies yes it's still there it's that reflex that they do have but it takes a lot more work for them to remember hang on I do have this reflex that I can continue to use and the way that the tongue tie, my belief is that if it's been held down, it's just going to be sitting in the back of their brain. And it's like, hang on, I don't need to use, you know, the middle to the back of my tongue to lift up and swallow. I'm just going to use my gums and pinch down on mum and, you know, gulp. Because if they're not using the middle to the back of their tongue, then that's when, you know, we get lots of air, um, you know, they're swallowing lots of air. Feeding can still occur. It's just not... I guess the most ideal way where it won't cause any discomfort either on mum or baby. Mm. So it is about, you know, yeah, the tethered oral tissues about how it can affect those oral reflexes, but as well as, okay, does it start to cause a lot of other issues? And I think, you know, one of the most important things that I do do with my mums is try and educate them as much as possible and, and explain to them how the tongue is really connected all the way down to our feet and mm, you know through the fascial system and I guess once we explain all of that to them it does make sense you know we we talk to them about okay the tongue tie can cause some you know body tension what's your baby doing is there a side preference that they prefer to sleep on and the minute they say yeah um you know right or left you know say for example they say you're the right side I the first thing I ask them is are you having more troubles feeding on your right side because, you know, it, it does. If they've got some upper body tension, the neck tension, of course, they're going to struggle if they're in the cross cradle hold or in the cradle hold feeding their baby. So it really does impact the entire body. And if the entire body is impacted plus the tongue, then feeding at one point will be impacted. Mm, yeah, it's amazing how it impacts my, again, my daughter with the tongue tie. We were having chiropractic care regularly from her birth. Um, She had a little bit of intervention and she was always holding to her left and she wouldn't feed on my right. And it wasn't until she was 13 weeks when she had her tie released that the chiropractic work would actually hold. Like she would always sort of straighten up and then a week later the head tilt would be back. But it wasn't, yeah, until the tongue was 
surgically yeah. treated in her case, that that muscle release could actually hold for her, actually have yes, a long term effect. Yeah, it's yeah. really, really cool. Yeah. So the next question I wanted to ask in terms of those oral tissues was about the term mild tongue tie. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to know your thoughts on on that expression and people giving a, a grading to tongue ties in, in that way. It infuriates me. Yeah, good, cool. I agree. <laughs> yeah, no, look, again, a restriction is a restriction and I do seem to come across a lot of families and because I, I'm a very big advocate, I guess, on our social media, we do say, look, there's no such thing as mild tongue ties, no small tongue ties, no slight or whatever it is. A tongue tie is a tongue tie. And, you know, when, again, I try and say it to a mother that pain is so subjective between you and I, for example, that what I would be able to tolerate, perhaps you couldn't or vice versa. So when we assess a baby based on how the tongue tie looks rather than looking at how it's impacting them and the mum, you know, it's not going to like. It, it, it just can't work. We need to do that whole approach, that holistic approach. And, you know, this is where the screening tools are really, really important and, you know, that they do come into play, but the screening tool needs to have that functional tool in that, you know, okay, we need to assess function. How is that function working? And, you know, I've had, for example, I use the Hazel Baker tool and the Atlef and the fact that there's been some, you know, the appearance score, oh, look, yes, this is where I, and this is what I do say to mums is look, in terms of the appearance, the tongue tie is actually not too bad, but then you look at how the baby's functioning and it's terrible. Whereas you've got a baby who's got the most severe looking tie, but yet somehow their functional score is not too bad. (laughs) So this is where I do say to them, look, yes, that the appearance is nothing. Our anatomy is all very, very different. No human body has the same anatomy, but we can all, you know, if we both have the same injury, we're going to both be compensating and working differently and feeling that pain very differently. So no, we can't just label a baby again, putting a baby in a box because it's mild. No. Okay. How is it impacting the baby? What's, you know, is it impacting their whole digestive system, whether it's colic, reflux, constipation, you know, mucusy, explosive poos. It's the whole thing that we need to look at. And yes, if it looks mild in inverted commas Mm. (laughs) it doesn't mean it actually is because you know this baby is not sleeping it's you know constipated or you know pooing frequently the you know cluster feeding every hour because they're fatiguing out you know within five minutes or so all of that needs to take into consideration what a tongue tie is actually doing to them because a tongue tie is a tongue tie a lip tie is a lip tie (laughs) there's no grading of mild or small or slight or yeah severe to me is the severity is based on how it's impacting the baby yeah and the thing with symptoms with babies it's it's not like we can ask them how does it feel (laughs) like I get to ask my my older patients especially adults who have ties or suspected ties and sort of say well well, how does that feel when you move your tongue like this or that because a lot of the time people again older people they can do a lot of the movements that are considered acceptable but then you sort of say but how does that feel 
because yeah. you can maybe see some blanching of tissue or something and yeah. oh it's so tense into my jaw or I can yeah. feel that pulling on my neck and it, like, you can't ask a baby that yeah <laughs> I'm, like, I'm tongue-tied now now obviously going back into it um I'm tongue-tied and I can and actually yeah I do feel that I get migraines I get headaches you know neck and shoulder pain constantly and jaw pain all the time and you know I'm in my car and I'll be doing the my functional exercises yeah. probably looking like a weirdo you know with yeah. my tongue everywhere yeah. but it hurts it really does hurt and you know every time I try and suction my tongue to the palate I can feel the tension I can feel the you know the floor of my muscles lifting up trying to compensate mm-hmm. I, I see all of that happening I can see that like I can feel the jaw trying to stabilize that when the tongue should be doing the work and that's me and this is me being aware of, okay, crap, I shouldn't really be doing this. But um, <laughs> here I am, tongue-tied, you know, 38 years later, suffering still yeah. because of it. Yeah, I'm the same. Obviously, to do OM for with patients, I've had to go through and make sure I can do these movements. Yes. <laughs> and that's, it's really, it is really good personal experience sometimes because yeah. then I can explain to patients as well, like, this is something, it's it's very much on my um, health goals to have it yes. surgically addressed. But yes, me I'm, too. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm maintaining at the moment. Um, and that's, it's a really good thing to be able to explain to patients. It's like, yeah. you can see all the things that I can do with my tongue. But I can tell you that's hard work. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. So on your social media, mm-hmm. you have a really awesome video. You probably have more than one, but I've seen one in particular <laughs> that is showing what a baby's oral function and that appearance element of what their tongue looks like prior mm-hmm. to some intervention for their oral function and mm-hmm. some body work and then what it looks like after. Which oh, yeah. is so yeah. different. So, um, yeah, I'd love to you to explain how that kind of first assessment may not be the end assessment, I suppose. Yeah. You know, it's sort of not always going to show you a true indication of a baby's Absolutely. ability. Yeah. So th- this is why I'm I'm very much, let's not, I think only maybe this year I've probably looked at maybe one or two mums rushing the release in terms of, okay, look, yes, that tongue is really restricted. We're going to struggle to do any further movements. Let's book you in for a release. But even then I'm like, okay, let's allow one, two weeks if we can, just to try and knuckle down some oral therapy beforehand. But this is why I really do stress to a lot of my mums is body work and exercises are so important pre-release because a lot of the, you know, not a lot of the time, there are some cases that it was just tension. It was, again, part of that fascial system, you know, babies sort of unwinding from pregnancy and, you know, recovering from the birth process that it can impact feeds. And, you know, that video that I do have, I do remember, you know, again, I learned so much about this little case and that was only last year where, you know, the again, the Hazelbake, the, the screening tool that I used, yes, you know, the appearance score was 3 out of 10, which, you know, does signify uh, quite a restricted tie and then the functional score was you know three out of 14 so yes and I said to her look let's look at doing some exercises for six weeks because the baby was three months at the time so I'm like let's let's focus on some therapy first and when I actually you know thought oh oh, she's booked in again you know must have had the release done and I went and saw her and she said to me that the pediatric dentist that I referred her to mentioned that there was no tongue tie and my what (laughs) so you know when when we went back and started looking through um you know talking about okay so what happened after I left um and she said that she 
went and saw the chiropractor. She was doing the exercises that I did suggest for her. And within three weeks, there was no more nipple pain. Baby was no more, like, wasn't clicking, no gulping, latching beautifully. I'm like, brilliant, three weeks. <laughs> and, you know, for, for a, you know, older baby, I would have just assumed, yeah, let's give it those six weeks, you know. And within three weeks, everything was great. So I did the, the full assessment again and, yeah, no tongue tie at all. So that baby had really restricted muscles that were making it appear, you know, obviously holding, you know, the frenulum down in a way that, it made it appear like there was a tongue tie when in fact it was just the muscle surrounding the little one that was actually really, really tight and pulling on that fascia. So mm-hmm. I do love to stress to my mums that, look, it's not, the tongue tie is not the quick fix. And sometimes we, we, most of the time we can improve feeding and how a baby is, you know, comfortable in terms of, you know, a lot of reflux symptoms reducing colic symptoms reducing let's let's do all of that before getting the tongue tie release because that the the release should be the last thing that you know part of the management treatment shouldn't be the first because you know say for example in the case that I had with this little one that baby would have had something released that didn't need to be released Mm. so you know this is where it I do stress how important it is to do all this therapy beforehand and of course afterwards to help strengthen that that function and the tongue and build that endurance because that's what we want we want to build endurance and strength for optimal function yeah cool would you say that those cases where I guess it's what you'd call a differential diagnosis where there's a questionable diagnosis of a tie and therapy has the ability to improve that appearance and function and therefore change your treatment decisions is that more more of a case in posterior attachments where the attachment is towards the back of the tongue versus an anterior attachment which is usually the ones that doctors and nurses will actually see in hospital yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah so the posterior parts yes it, it can always be and if anything those are the ones that I really do want to stress about taking that time to, to do that therapy first because, again, posterior ties will also impact function in one way and it will impact sort of the elevation of the tongue, which is required for optimal feeding and swallowing. So it is so important to take that time. The anterior ones, yes, they, they can be very restricted, but they can also cause a lot of um, issues with uh, a mum's pain, you know, in terms of nipple pain. And I guess this is where the doctors in the in the hospital system will see that and they will sniff it because the mum is experiencing pain, but they have left that posterior component behind. <laughs> so, you know, the the mum may find that they have had some success because all of a sudden that latch feels better because they've only released the anterior part. But then, you know, a few weeks later, maybe a couple of months later, all of a sudden, hang on, what's going on? And they won't think it is a tongue tie related issue because in their mind it's already been resolved by the doctor in the hospital who most likely didn't do a full assessment and didn't realize okay when there's an anterior component there's always a posterior component behind it and they've left that posterior component behind which mm-hmm. is the one that's impacting function yeah I have to say it's something I see quite often yeah <laughs> and this is usually more so in my dental practice assessments because it was a 
kind of a by the way you're here to make sure you don't have tooth decay and you're brushing properly and then once I'd learned the OM stuff just okay yeah. oh, hang on a sec this tongue's not really moving properly and, and once you have a chat it's quite often mothers would say oh no 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 we had that treated yeah we had the tongue yeah. treated and it's yeah, yeah it, it makes it harder it puts your next steps on a bit of a back foot sometimes because yeah. you're kind of trying to reverse a scenario where people thought it was already really done which is really frustrating for everyone yeah it's hard work so in terms of the orofacial myology the oral function training and perspective to your work is that something you've always incorporated into your IBCLC work or is that no so again you know leaving the hospital system I was able to practice how I wanted to practice but it wasn't to until and again uh, you know I want to sort of specify that during my midwifery nursing midwifery even my IBCLC training we never really touch on ties, never. Mm. And it was only until I started working on my own and just learning a little bit about it. I hadn't learned so much about it, but just the things that I must have come across with, I started putting two and two together with my children because I had a terrible time with both of my kids, but they were both very, very different. And, you know, unfortunately with my son, it's impacted him a lot more than what it has with my daughter. My, you know, my daughter's four and a half and she complains a lot of body tension so she complains so much of you know neck and shoulder pain and she's been doing this for almost you know six months to a year and I'm like what three four year old is complaining mm. of adult problems and yeah that's an interesting she, awareness she, she, <laughs> she's very very aware of herself so I think that's the only reason why she was able to express it otherwise I probably wouldn't have known and now yes looking back at it I'm like oh my god she does vomit every single time she puts something close like heaps in her mouth or when she's unwell so she does have a very sensitive gag reflex and looking back at her she used to projectile vomit her entire food she would never sleep she was a catnapper you know just really terrible and my son he was a great sleeper he slept you know fed and slept every six hours but he would also take almost an hour to feed or more. And even when he was about six months of age, I'm like, what the hell? Like, what's going on? And, you know, I'd be like going out with friends for mother's group and I'd see that their babies would be done in 10 minutes. And I'm like, why is my child still here feeding? And he would mm-hmm. fall asleep because he was that fatigued. It's pretty much his whole awake window was always feeding, even as he was getting older. <laughs> And, you know, I see him now and I see him struggling so bad. He's got, you know, sleep apnea already. It's so obvious that he's got sleep apnea. He has the quality, the quantity of sleep hours, but not the quality. He wakes up so dark and really, really struggling to maintain concentration, always fatigued. We can see how his jaw, like his facial features are already changing. So when I started putting to, and the fussy eating as well, he can't eat mash, he can't, you know, he's got terrible function. And the fact that I started saying, you know, he was always messy. And it was only because I said, oh, mate, just use your, just use your tongue to wipe your face. And when I saw him trying to do that, I'm like, no way, no way. Mm. So then from what I had already learned a little bit, I started looking into his mouth and thinking, what the hell? Like, and you know, he was in speech therapy for four or five years and it wasn't picked up until I picked it up. And again, you know, again, speech therapists are not trained as well. It's extra, extra training that is required. So it's not like I could get angry. I was angry at first thinking, why wasn't this addressed? But at the same time, I'm like, hang on, I was in the same boat. I had no clue. So it was only until 
I started really looking into him and doing my own research and then that's so pretty much he's the reason why I went down the OM kind of route because I was like wow I see how it continues to impact him and he's going to be eight this year and it's you know it's the even just his confidence you know just he he's doing a lot better now in terms of the therapy exercises that we've been doing he's not as messy around his mouth but his self-esteem and he's so you know, I can see him struggling already because at the minute he eats and we're out in public, he comes up to me and goes, mum, do I have food all over my face? And I'm like, mm. there's such bad anxiety already in a child who obviously has grown for so long this way that I never realised how much it's not just, you know, oral function, the development, it's their self-esteem, it's their, you know, their confidence, all of that is impacted too and we need to remember that they're human beings just like us mm. with the same feelings they just struggle to express them you know in a way so you know oral function really affects everything and I guess seeing how my two kids were very very different really threw me into into that area yeah and it's such a cycle too because then if if sleep and breathing is affected then that just increases anxiety and mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you don't sleep well because you're also anxious as well yeah, as not breathing well. Ter- terrible anxiety over sleep. Mm-hmm. Again, we went down the medical route and he had sleep studies done and he we saw a sleep specialist and their, I guess, approach was let's sedate him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even when he was sedated, he was on horrible medication. He was on clonidine. He was on, you know, compounded melatonin. He was on clonazepam, everything that you could give him that would knock any human being out he would still be getting up constantly. The only difference was that he was so drowsy and banging into walls and everything. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is terrible. So it it didn't even help at all. And it was only until we started taking this airway approach and, you know, seeing the paediatric dentist who I work closely with, things have slowly improved and he's not medicated. Mm, (laughs) So it makes a a big difference. Yeah, I think that is a good point that you made earlier that, dental practitioners, speech pathologists, IBCLCs, OTs, mm-hmm. the whole picture of health, um, anyone that you would think has a relevance to um, oral function isn't necessarily actually trained in it. It is yes. add-on add on training, unfortunately. Yes, absolutely. Cool. So to end our chat today, I have three short questions that I'm asking all my guests at the end. My first yeah. one is, if you could change one thing about our current healthcare system, what would it be? <laughs> yeah only um, one I'm very mean with my only one yeah <laughs> look I think the main one would be to listen to a mother's concern without that blame culture because I was one of those mums who was blamed that it was me or that I needed to stop being a nurse and be a mum and it's really dismissive and I don't think any family and any mum especially should go through that so just listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same with that, similar, that philosophy in terms of what we mentioned right at the start, like the cause informing the cure. I don't know who said it or whose idea it is, but if you like, if you just listen to your patient for long enough, they will tell you, get you all what the, the problem is. Yeah, absolutely. You get all the answers <laughs> from listening to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what do you wish was taught in schools about health? Tithe. Absolutely. Oral oral function. Um, And I guess that, again, that starts from maybe not so much the nursing side of things, but even midwifery is a postgraduate course that I did do. You know, the fact that it impacts feeding so much, we don't touch it. We don't, we don't even go close to anything abnormal with feeding. So 
starting from training those graduates can really alter and change in a positive way a parent's you know fourth trimester onwards yeah their parenting journey for sure and is there a book or a podcast or a documentary some form of media that you think all our listeners should watch <laughs> or listen to well, in terms of ties, I do love my two books. I do Dr. Shireen Lim's Breathe, Sleep mm-hmm. and Thrive, uh, Dr. or Richard Baxter's Tongue Tied book. But my favourite one, and I guess this is more of a personal one with my son's sort of needs, um, it's called uh, The Boy Who Could Run But Not Walk, and it's by Karen Pape. And my son does have cerebral palsy, but the way I learned about this, because again, my son's very independent. He, you know, very much does his, what he wants. He does his own hair and he's very slick. But because he was diagnosed at 18 months, we could actually see, again, therapy, early intervention is the key. And this book is wonderful. And it talks a lot about neuroplasticity and how we can change an infant's brain by therapy, through therapy, through constant repetitive oral motor you know gross motor fine motor everything so I guess we me working as a you know IBCLC but with a lot of that body awareness stems from that stems from hang on we've got seven years of to be able to you know mold that brain to the way we want it to and it's through that constant repetition and you know so when mums do say look is it too late and I'm like it's never too late it's just easier in those early years never too early and it's never too late yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. I think I need a whole podcast episode probably a whole podcast series about neuroplasticity I love it just for the (laughs) listeners sake um that's basically the concept that our our neural pathways are plastic which means they're moldable yes they're moldable you know, can learn new tricks, basically. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So you are based in Perth in WA, but you're also available telehealth, is that right? How can can our listeners work with you? So they can obviously find us on our social media pages, either at the Gentle Village on Instagram or on our Facebook page, um, or our website is www.thegentlevillage.com.au. And they can actually book virtually there. And we, we've we helped so many international clients too. Mm-hmm. It's just always trying to find a time that obviously with the time zones and the time differences. Well, they're probably all up at two in the morning feeding anyway, right? So <laughs> you can figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that's so good because especially like I live in a, a rural community in North Queensland. And so, yeah, I know the challenges of A, having someone available and then B, Absolutely. if they are around, do you connect with them? Because we don't yeah. always necessarily, you know, connect with just the person that's there we, we need yeah. options so that's really good that you're available for anyone and everyone Thank as long you. as you have the time for them <laughs> thanks so much for joining me today Brenda and um, sharing your your journey and your family story yeah. it was really thank you for having me great so um, in the show notes we'll put all those ways that people can get in touch with you and we'll see you on Instagram thank you very much <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Head to the show notes if you would like to get in touch with this week's guest. And if you'd like to learn more about oral and facial function or work with me at The Face Place, you'll find me on Instagram at thefaceplace underscore OFM or at thefaceplaceofm.com.au. The Face Place podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Juru people. I would like to pay my respects to the elders past and present.